Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. Well, good morning, beloved. We're going to look at the next uh, passage in Colossians. That's If you want to open your Bibles to it or if you want to use the one that's in the pew in front of you or on your phone or however you have that, it's... Uh, it's uh, Colossians 1, verse 24 to 29. If you're looking in, in the Pew Bible, it's on page 983. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take that with you. Um, you don't even need to sneak out like you stole it or anything. You won't have to do that. You can proudly walk out with your very own. And no one, no one will, ma- uh, will, will mind that. In fact, they might applaud you as you go out. Well, uh, this morning, before we look at this passage and dive into it, I'm going to tell you about one of the strangest stories I discovered. I had no idea about this until I ran across it, of a story uh, coming out of World War II. It's called The Ghost Army. The PBS did a, uh, a documentary on this in 2013, and, and this story, th- this, this unit that was created for the U.S. military uh, was a collection of college art students, um, actors, sound technicians, and ad agency executives who all collaborated to create this fictional army. In fact, I found out last night from one of our elders, Paul Sedia, that General Patton, George Patton, was actually in charge of this phony army, and he didn't like that at all. But I want you to see how this army worked, this ghost army. So, Mike, would you play the video for us? bundle of stuff, all compressed before. You opened the bundle, spread the nozzles around, and inflated it. The artillery piece was good, but that M4 tank, that was the beauty. That was a piece of work. Back of my half-track, I tell my children was the biggest boombox you ever saw, but it played sounds of tanks and activity. They had recordings of building a pontoon bridge or any type of bridge and you could hear them hammering away and swearing and we returned loose in town go to the pub order some omelets and talk loose to be in the middle of this incredible adventure the world at war in a foreign country uh, I just had to put it down we were sleeping in hedgerows and foxholes, but nothing kept us away from going someplace to do a watercolor. We moved on up into this last grand deception. And there was nothing between us but our hopes and prayers that separated us from the Panzer Division. 
they're 300 yards, they're 200 yards, and suddenly you realize that's the enemy. I used to refer to us as the Cecil B. the Mill Warriors. So these 1,100 artists and actors and sound technicians uh, were brought together in order to deceive Hitler's armies in, uh, in Europe, in the European theater. And apparently between 1944 and 45, they set up 200 fake armies and absolutely messed up all the intelligence that Hitler got. So they were very effective in what they did. Now, what we saw here was misinformation and disinformation. We've certainly heard a lot about that this year. Now, misinformation, misinformation is just an honest mistake, right? You tell your friend the party starts at uh, uh, 7 o'clock and you forgot it starts at 8, so your friend shows up at 7 and goes, well, I guess I've got to stand around for an hour before the party starts. That's normal. We forget things. We, we might say make a mistake. Dis disinformation is very different from that. Div disinformation is a deliberate deception. So you might say to your friend, hey, we... You ought to come to this costume party. It's going to be great. Everybody's going to be in a great costume. So grab a costume and come. And your friend comes to the party and he finds out it's black tie. And he's wearing a toga and a red face. So the difference between misinformation and disinformation is motive, the intent. The intent of disinformation is to cause chaos, confusion, alienation, division, uh, between people. Now, Paul is dealing with disinformation in the church of Colossae. That's why he writes this, this letter, because there's a new heresy that's blowing through town. It's gaining ground, and it's causing confusion and alienation among the church members because the false teachers there are spreading disinformation about Christ, and that's their intention. What they want to do by motive is to separate the church from the love of God in Christ, to separate them from Paul and from one another. And so they're spreading a very dangerous teaching that dilutes and nullifies, even adulterates the gospel. Now, Paul's not going to let this stand, of course, and so he goes into action. He writes this letter, and he has a two-pronged attack. And the first prong was what Pastor Jamie preached last week so well was this big, glorious, powerful, resurrected, victorious Christ over victorious over all things, including death, and that that's the rock-solid anchor of our hope. The second thing he does is to teach the church how to spot disinformation in false ministers. Now, just think. Just think of the implications if this disinformation took root in the church. These people would be alienated from God. They wouldn't be able to trust him at all. They, they would have to conclude that God is a liar. Paul is a liar. Epaphras, who taught them, is a liar. All of the apostles are a liar. God is not trustworthy. Therefore, since Christ is insufficient to meet our need for salvation, we're going to have to look for salvation somewhere else. And where are they going to go? And if they go there, what will they find? They won't find anything that will satisfy their souls. They'll be restless, and they may just give up. So Paul can't let any of this stand. And so in this passage that we're going to look at, he will teach the church what authentic ministers and authentic ministries look like because he's very familiar with this um, tactic 
of our spiritual enemy. Paul, even in one letter, called them angels of light. They were messengers of Satan, Paul says, in order to do all of this. So we're going to learn, too, because the gospel is always under attack in every generation. It's been under attack since the beginning. It's under attack today. It's under attack to ignore it, to deny it, to dilute it. So we have to become familiar with God's sanctioned standards of measurement for authentic gospel ministry. So what should we be looking for? Well, that's where verses 24 to 29 come in so that we can spot that. Now, here's where we're going to go uh, with, with these, uh, these verses. Uh, in, in verse 24, we're going to look at suffering as the credentials of Godward joy in ministry. Secondly, verses 25 to 28, we're going to look at uh, Paul's stewardship, and that is his responsibility with the calling that God gave him. And then finally, the source of his strength in verse 29, which is God's power at work in him. So let's pray that the, the Spirit will, will open our minds and help us to understand uh, these things this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you that you haven't left us on our own. You, you are always with us. Uh, You're right here in the pews with us. You're right here in the hearts of so many of your people. And we want to know how to spot true, authentic gospel ministers and ministries. So we pray that you will teach us what we need to know today from this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read verse 24, the first thing. That Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, a couple of things need to be said here. First of all, it's interesting that the very first credential of authentic ministry Paul points to is suffering, yet he doesn't focus only on the suffering. He focuses mostly on the joy. Now, why would he do this? Well, this is a a rebuttal to the false teachers who were telling the church, listen, if Paul was really a minister of God, if he was really an apostle, if God really sent him, do you think he'd be in jail right now? I mean, this guy goes into towns and he causes riots. How can that be authentic ministry? No, if God was really blessing Paul, you know what you would see? You would see loving and adoring crowds of people shedding adulation on him. So he can't be a faithful, authentic minister. We are the authentic ministers. So Paul is saying no, and he turns this whole concept of suffering around, and he aims it back at these deceptors. Now, he says an amazing thing here that just really ought to just, I mean, if you're not awake, this will wake you up. Paul is saying, I'm filling up that which is lacking in Christ's sufferings. What? What does he mean by that? Now, he can't possibly mean that the suffering of Jesus on the cross was in any way insufficient for the salvation of anyone who comes to Christ by faith. So, so what in the world is he alluding to? Well, we need to look very carefully at how Paul says this in his sentence. Look at what he says. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in, uh, 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 for the sake of his body. That is the church. That's the key right there. The ch- Paul is calling the church the body of Christ. And so he's saying, I am taking on some of the suffering 
that is set aside for you, Colossians, in order to participate in what's going on in your ministry. Now, we still ought to be scratching our heads because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. After all, is there really any place in the Bible where we see that God says every Christian is going to have a certain amount of suffering and churches will too? That God sets that agenda for the church and for the believer, but we're talking about the church. All we need to do is to go to Revelation 6, verse 11. And there we see the martyrs who have gone on before us crying out to Jesus, please, please bring justice into the world. Please end this pain that's down there. We, there are so many of our brothers and sisters who have given their lives. When, O oh Lord, will you bring justice? And Jesus says this. He says, be patient, be calm, because the number of martyrs is not yet filled up who will die for my name. That means there are many more martyrs. Jesus has not returned because there are many more who are going to give their lives for the sake of the gospel. That's the agenda of suffering, and God places the amount of that suffering that will take place on every Christian, every church around the world, including our own. So what Paul is saying here is, I'm participating in the suffering that God has set aside for you, and I'm doing it with joy, because I know this is going to fill up for your glory and God's glory. You will be thrilled at what God is going to do through your suffering. I had a fellow last night say to me, you know that part about suffering in your sermon? I didn't like it. I said, neither do I, but it's in there, not in the sermon, it's in the book. Why in the world would there be suffering in the church or for the church? Well, just think about this. The hatred for Jesus didn't end at his resurrection. There's still hatred for Jesus in the world today, right? That hatred can't be directed at him directly because he's not here. He's in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. But he feels that suffering with us. And so, uh, if, you don't, if you don't believe that's true, just, just do this test. Test the reaction that you get when you define marriage biblically as one man, one woman, in a covenant relationship, before God, for life. What will you hear? You will hear you have no right to impose that outdated morality on me. My God would never be so discriminatory. He would never debase my dignity. That's what you will hear. That is hatred at God, at Christ, and it comes at the church because we're the next best target. So we have to, you know, if, if, you've, been, if you've been saved for just even a few days, you probably have to wonder why in the world is the gospel which is so wonderful, so hated. Well, there's just one real primary reason for that, and is, that is that the gospel undermines our most cherished human belief. Our most cherished human belief is that we are able, by our own goodness, to please God. And we are also sufficient for his requirements or his demands. 
But the gospel tells us, not only are you insufficient, you are unable. You are unable to do anything to please God. In fact, if you, if you were able, you would not want to. And so, this kind of thought and ideology produces, um, well, let's put it this way. If you were, asked, if you were to ask someone, why, why, should you go, why should you go to heaven? Why should Jesus save you? If they start the sentence with the first person, I, they've missed the point. You know, I know I'm going to go to heaven because I obey the Ten Commandments. I know I'm going to go to heaven because I, I obey the golden rule. I know because I am so sincere in my spirituality. Well, listen, the gospel does not demand proof of our moral ability or capacity. In fact, what it demands is quite the opposite. It demands that we abandon our first-person reasons for getting to heaven and use the third person instead. Think about the thief on the cross. I just heard this story this week. I just loved it. I'm not going to tell it as well as the pastor who did, uh, but I'll, 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 I'll do it anyway. Um, it was Alistair Begg, by the way, if you want to know. So, so think of the thief on the cross. And he's there, of course, and he's, he's yelling at Jesus, and, and, he's, and he's saying nasty things, and then all of a sudden, bang, that changes. And, he's, and he turns to Jesus, and he says, you know, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, and Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And then, boom, he dies. That is the thief. So the thief dies, and he goes up to the pearly gates. Where, who's standing at the pearly gates? Come on, you know. Peter, right? So Peter says to him, who are you and what are you doing here? And the thief says, I don't know. He says, well, how'd you get here? He says, I don't know. Well, it, listen, what do you know about the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone? I don't know. I never heard about it. Um, okay, okay. Have you ever been baptized? Nope, never got the chance. Wait a second, wait, I gotta, go, I gotta go get my supervisor. And he talks over and says, and he comes back and, he, and the supervisor says, why, why in the world should we let you in? How, how did you get here? And he says, well, it was that guy on the middle cross. He told me I could come. That's where salvation comes from. Not because I did anything, not because you did anything, but because the man on the middle cross said, you can come in. So if you're waiting to clean up your life today, the gospel says to you, don't even bother. Don't even bother. Come hungry, come thirsty, come empty, come dirty, come filthy. I'm down there in all that with you. I will clean you up, and I'll do a better job than you will. So you just come. That's the gospel that Paul preaches. Now, so many ministers are Satan's target. We see that in Paul's life and ministry, uh, all throughout his ministry. He talks about the um, suffering that he went through for the sake of the gospel. And, uh, and I want to take a detour here for just a moment because I read a very interesting article. Uh, Pastor Jamie and I belong to a cluster of pastors, and we do, uh, we read so many books, I'm telling you. <sighs> Anyway, we read these books, but we're very well aware of what's going on with pastors' lives in America right now, probably across the Western uh, culture. Um, 
Not very many pastors in America are suffering from shipwreck and the beasts of Ephesus or getting, you know, stonings happen and beating them out of town, but there's something unhealthy that is going on. And I read this uh, survey results from the Danielson Institute at Boston University. It was published in 2019. And it was a survey of the clergy. This, this institute apparently um, helps people with mental health and their well-being, and particularly in this case for clergy members. And the result of this was that uh, they said um, PTSD is on the rise among ministers. 55% of them are diagnosed with PTSD. Another 35% are probably diagnosed with PTSD. They said there's no greater helping profession, including first responders, that suffer more from PTSD than ministers. In fact, they went so far as to say combat veterans don't suffer as much from PTSD as pastors. Now, that really caught my attention. So what's going on? There's something unhealthy going on in our churches. Look at these statistics. Mike, would you put, would you put those up? We, 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 the pastors talk about this. We talk about this all the time because we've got to do something. 1,500 pastors across all denominations, 1,500 pastors will leave their churches just this month. 61% of those pastors who leave the pastorate were forced out by their congregations. 83% of pastors' wives admit that they want their husbands to quit the ministry. This one really blew me away. 90% of pastors across all denominations will not stay in the ministry long enough to retire. That means only 10% get there to retirement. This year, 50% of the graduates from America's seminaries who go and take some position in a local church will not be in that position in five years. It's not because they'll take another position, it's because they will leave the ministry. The profession pastor ranked right near the bottom of all occupations, just above car salesmen. Okay, what's it gonna take to get you into this church? Now, I had to wonder, what is the source of all this pain? Paul has the answer, of course. He says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, we're, we're, but against uh, evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now, how does that apply to your pastor, our pastor, Jamie? If you look in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists all the things that he went through, shipwrecks and hunger and beatings and rejection and fear of robbers. It's just a whole long litany of things. But there's something he says at the bottom. And I think he left it at the bottom in order to bring emphasis to the point of it. And the point is, besides all these things, the condition of the churches weigh on me daily. And I think that's where most pastors really live. It was, it's true of Jamie. I'm not speaking out of turn. I know he takes this, his ministry stuff home, even takes it with him on vacation. I got a text from him on vacation. I had to tell him, what are you doing? You're on vacation. Don't worry about it. Monday's coming. So, 
Let's say two things. First of all, two things. One about you and one about our pastor. You don't have to be a pastor or a missionary or a children's worker or anything to suffer. All you need to be is a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer. Why? Because Jesus said so. Jesus said the world will hate you, and guess what? It does. <laughs> Isn't that good news? Not only does the world hate you as if that was your only enemy, Satan hates you. And guess what? Your own fallen flesh hates you. It's a trifecta of hatred. So, why is this good news? Well, it's good news for a couple of reasons. First of all, the hatred of the world and our suffering means that there's evidence that we are united to Christ. We are in him. That's why we suffer. Remember, the attack is against Christ, not really against you, but Christ is in you, so you're the target. It also means that our suffering is never pointless. God uses our suffering in order to mature us. And we're being honored in our suffering because we know there's a future reigning in the resurrection. And there's just no comparison, no, no comparison to what we're experiencing now to what we will experience in the future for eternity. No comparison. It's light, Paul said. Now, how do we apply this to Pastor Jamie? Well, first of all, pray for him. And I know you do. I know many of you do. And I know many of you who pray for him every single day because you told me that. But I want you to think about what you're doing when you're praying for him and a way to pray for him. Uh, for your homework this afternoon, go home and read Exodus chapter 17. That's the story where uh, the Israelites have to battle the Amalekites. It's like the very first battle that they face. And, and God tells Moses, I want you to go up on this hilltop and I want you to look down over the battlefield where Joshua and the Israelite armies are going to take on the Amalekites. And I want you to stand there and I want you to hold up this staff that I gave you as, an, as a symbol of your authority with, with me. And so Moses, now let's remember, Moses is an old guy, and this is a day-long battle. And so like, you know, 80-plus-year-old guys don't hold up staffs, even though there might be only three or four pounds, you know, for like 20 hours, and pretty soon it's doing one of these numbers. And when that happens, the Amalekites start winning the battle. When his arms are all the way up, the Israelites are winning the battle. This is all due to God, of course. But, but Moses understood what was happening, so he needed help. And he called his brother Aaron, and he called her, a friend of theirs, and they brought a big stone for him to sit on. And Moses sat on the stone like this, right? And he held up that staff like this, and each guy held up an arm. And the battle went for Israel's way all day long, and they finally won the victory. Now, that's what we do in prayer, right? We are Aaron and her, and we're holding up the arms of Jamie so that when the spiritual battle is hot and heavy, he's going to be victorious, and we're going to rejoice in God. And here's the best part, as far as I'm concerned. If we're Aaron and her, and he's Moses, he's the oldest guy on staff. <laughs> and I'm the second oldest guy. And I just love that picture. So that's how, that really energizes my praying for him. I just, just um, had to get that in, Jamie. If you want to know what to pray for for him, all you need to do is go over to chapter 4 in Colossians. Look at verse 3. It says this. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. And I know that's his heart. It's all he wants to do. It's 
all he wants to do. All right, I need to move on quickly for the next two points because I took up so much time on this one. The second measurement of faithful or authentic gospel ministry and ministers um, is the stewardship of the ministry. That is the responsibility that the person has for the calling of God. So let's read verses 25 to 27. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was bestowed or given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now this is what Paul, this is what stewardship means to Paul. At his conversion, he understands he was given two gifts. Responsibilities, yes, but he looks at them as gifts. The first gift he was given, and that's what the word bestowed carries, that sense of being given a gift. The first gift that he was given was to preach the gospel to those who are in the dark about Jesus so that their eyes would be open because the world has blinded them. So he wants them to see their eyes open so that they see the beauty of Christ and are attracted to him and come to him for salvation. Paul was also going to speak in front of kings. He was going to speak to the Gentiles and the children of Israel, all of which he did as you read even just the book of Acts. But the second thing that he was told is that he would suffer for the name of Jesus. And you can trace his rejection from city to city to city all the way through the book of Acts. But here's what we discover about Paul in his view of these gifts. He never saw suffering as the most important thing given to him. In fact, he never complained or argued with God about the suffering because the gift of preaching was so great it swallowed up any hesitation he might have of pressing forward with that gift of the preaching of the gospel. There was only one time, and Paul says, you know, the thorn in the flesh. I've got this thorn in the flesh. I asked God to remove it uh, three times. He said no, but notice his reaction. It's in my flesh. In other words, there's something going on in me that God wants to get at, so he sent me this messenger from Satan. I don't think it could be any clearer, at least in my mind, that the messenger that came to him was, was one person or a group of people who were opposing him in his, in his ministry and just causing him all kinds of pain. But he said, you know what? This is working out for my sanctification, so I, I'm going to take it. It's good. I'm going to get holier because of their opposition to me. So Paul never thought of suffering as a, as, a, as a problem. In fact, he used it as part of his strategy of evangelism. He put it center stage. And understanding and letting people know the reason I'm suffering is because this message is so important. My suffering validates the message. It makes this message authentic and real, and that's why you should listen. J. Oswald uh, Sanders, who was the general director of the China Inland Mission in the 1950s and 60s, told a story of an indigenous Indian pastor who walked from village to village in India. He had no shoes, and the roads in India are awful, uh, and at that time they were all probably dirt. Um, and so he, he's going from village to village, and as he goes through a village in order to preach the gospel, people come out, and they beat him, and they kick him, and they throw him out of, out of the village. And so he goes like that from village to village to village, and, and this is like uh, you know a couple of weeks long journey where this is happening. He comes to what he 
plans to be the last village. And he goes to the village, same response. They start beating him with, you know, those bamboo canes, and they whack him out of, and he's just tired and discouraged now. He's just ready to give up. And he goes out to the edge of the village. He lays down behind, uh, beside a tree, and he just falls into an exhausted sleep. When he wakes up, he looks up, and there's all these people from the village staring down at him, like circled around him. And you can think, you can see the first thought on his mind is, oh, no, they're going to kill me. Instead, the elder of that village works his way through the crowd, and he looks down at this, at this itinerant preacher, and he says, we're here to apologize to you. We notice the bleeding on your feet and the blisters on the bottom of your feet. And we realized that if you're willing to go through that, there must be some very important message we need to hear. So, so please, tell us. He preached the gospel. Apparently, the entire village came to Christ. Suffering will validate the ministry, and that's why it's a gift. Now, Paul executed his ministry in two ways. Verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching every man and woman with all wisdom. That's the method, method, admonishing and teaching with wisdom so that, and here's the purpose or the goal, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So, Paul wants to make God's word fully known. Nothing is hidden like the false teachers. They said they had hidden wisdom and hidden, you know, this really secret information that everybody needed, uh, and, and probably it was not free. You had to pay for it, but the gospel is proclaimed publicly, and it's free. No one has to pay a dime for it. In fact, if you did, it would be a horror to the person who preaches the gospel. And to make God's people fully mature. So he's got two agendas here, and that is to make God's word fully known. Like Paul said, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And secondly, to make God's people fully matured. We're going to labor until Christ is formed in you. So we have to ask at that point, Paul, is you saying anything here about what that maturity looks like? What are we to expect? And here's what he says to expect in the maturity of God's people, at least in this verse. And that is, number one, teaching or admonishing that satisfies your heart in the reality of the presence of Christ in you. To satisfy your soul in the reality, not the doctrine in your head, but the reality of Christ dwelling, living, helping you in your soul so that you never, never think you are alone no matter what suffering you go through. And the second thing he's doing, the second goal that he has is to um, um, withdraw our affections for hope in the world and replace it with hope in Christ, hope in glory. And these two must always go together. The only reason that any Christian has hope of glory dwelling in the soul is because we have the one dwelling in us who secured it. And that will never change. So the measures to look for are ministers who never withhold anything. They're not afraid to warn. 
especially those hard parts of the Bible. That, you know, we talk about the doctrines of sin and hell and the wrath of God. You come to those passages, teach them. Also, not afraid to teach the heart and mind from Genesis to Revelation about the mercy of God, his slowness to anger, his abounding love and faithfulness, and forgiving all kinds of sinfulness. The whole counsel of God is what is to be taught. And I want to encourage you to be thankful for Jamie's efforts when he preaches the whole counsel of God. You know, especially when he goes from preaching to meddling. And you feel, you're, feeling, you're feeling a little heat. Not this kind of heat. This, but like heat, heat from the Spirit. He's stomping on your toes a little bit and you're squirming in your seat a little bit. You know what that is? That's not Jamie being mad at you. That is your heavenly Father who is coming to you and saying, you need this, and I'm going to bring you up as a son or a daughter for the glory of my name. You're going to change because you need to change, and I'm going to be the one to make that change happen in you. That's your father coming to you in those corrective moments. And then when there's hard scriptures to understand, I mean, I, I love it that Peter said, you know, sometimes it's really hard to understand the things that Paul wrote, and I go, amen. Man, I had a few of them in seminary. Nobody gave me the answer, dang it. And I pound on this verse until something happens. You know what that is? That is the Spirit of God coming to you, taking you by the hand, and doing what he does best, leading you into all truth. So appreciate especially Jamie or any other minister who does that for you. Now, finally, we have these two measurements, you know, suffering and stewardship, and there is a third, and that is the strength in ministry. It's God's power at work. Look at verse 29. It's the very last thing that Paul says. For this I toil, struggling with all energy uh, that he, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So the source of, of uh, Paul's strength for ministry, because ministry is no cakewalk. Remember, we started out saying it's a spiritual battle, and spiritual battles need supernatural power. He says, I labored, and you could add to the point of exhaustion, because that's really what the word means. And then he says, I strive. I'm striving. That's the character of his laboring, and it's tireless. And we get our English word from that Greek word, it's agonizing. It's agonizing. You're, well, what's so agonizing? You're, listen, every time a sermon is preached, there is resistance to it right straight from hell because the stakes are so high. People's lives hang in the balance whenever a sermon is preached. And that's why it, pastors like Jamie agonize. Do I get this right? What's this gonna, how am I going to communicate this? That is work. So that's the source of Paul's strength. Paul focuses not on the struggle, but on the power that's working in him. It's always God who's the source of the power. Look at these verses from Corinthians. He says this so many ways. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. There is God. God is the source. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I love, I love the way he says, I worked harder than them all. 
I worked harder than every. I worked harder than Jamie. Yeah, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was God, his grace, that's in me. And then this last one. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. Paul never wanted any church's faith to rest in his wisdom, his power, his eloquence, his teaching. He wanted their faith to rest in God. Uh, when Nita and I um, coach conf- people in conflict, um, uh, we try to make it a habit of telling them right at the beginning, we're not, we're not going to be able to help you much. We're going to do what we can do. But real change is going to come when you, just, when you take just six words from God's word and apply it to your life, you will be transformed. Because the power is in God. The power is in his word. That's where change comes from. Now, this same, the same decisive power is available to every single Christian who wants to live as a Christian. It's crucial for our obedience It's always the power of God working in us. Look at this verse from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If Paul left off there, everybody should just quit and walk out and go home. That's it. I can't do that. I, I can't. I can fear. I can tremble. But how do I work out my own salvation? Well, Paul tells us how. And he says, for, or put the word because, you can do this, why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So whenever whenever you come up against a a command, you know, Jesus says, I want you to do this. Your, Your first response should never be, okay, Lord, I'm on it. Here's your first response. I can't. I can't do that. Love the unlovely? Are you kidding me? I barely love the lovely. And I love myself supremely. So how am I going to love the unlovely? And the answer is, for it is God's grace at work in you, not only to will to do it, but to do it. And I would read that and I go, oh, okay. So God knows I can't do it. He's not blaming me because I can't do it. What he wants me to do is lean on his grace to do it. And then when I do that, when I just take that one step to love that unlovely person, guess what? I find that love just springing up out of me. And I thought, where in the world did this come from? This is not me. It's because it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. So, Whenever you see people around here volunteering, like up here on the platform or down the nursery or up at the booth, I want you to understand what you're watching. You're not watching them. I mean, you, you are. You see them. I, I don't mean that. But, but what you're seeing is God at work on your behalf. It's as if God says to you, listen, I want you to know, those people down in the nursery taking care of those little children, I want you to know these are the instruments of my grace in my hand as a gift to you, to bless you, 
to bless them with everything necessary to grow in maturity and bring glory to my name. That's what you're looking at every single time. His power works mightily in me to do any of these things. So what? Let's bring this to a close. Let's make some application here to help us. First of all, in order to measure authentic gospel ministers and ministry, pay attention to three things. First of all, are they willing to pay the price of gospel ministry with all of its pressures, all of its disappointments, and all of its victories accompanied with joy throughout? In other words, we're asking, are they joyful people even though they suffer? Secondly, are they striving to fulfill their stewardship of the Word of God, especially when it comes to opposition or having uh, to say the hard things but the necessary things about us and about God? Are they willing? Are they striving to do that and do it well? Third, are they so dependent on the Spirit's power for the ministry that you see the work of the grace of God at work in them, and you experience the satisfying reality of Christ in you who secures your hope of glory. Now, let's make a personal application for you. That's what we look for in ministry and ministers. Well, how does this apply to just, you know, us average-type Christians? Let me ask you three questions. When you share, when we share in the sufferings of Christ... Do we accept them as evidence of our union with Christ, trusting that we will one day rule and reign with him, or do we complain bitterly? Secondly, in the stewardship of our various callings, husbands, fathers, grandfathers, wives, sons, daughters, Christian, whatever, just the ordinary parts of our lives, are we doing everything for the glory of God, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31? I love the way John Piper said it. He said, you know, according to that verse, I can drink orange juice to the glory of God. Someday I will get to the point of eating fish for the glory of God. Maybe a long way off. God and my wife are working on me. And the third thing to look for, when it comes to God's power at work in your life, to do anything for the Lord, are you leaning on his power in the ordinary parts of your life? You know, and to do that, all you need to do is say, God, I need your power to do this. I mean, just short little prayer and then go do it. As you can expect, he's going to answer that. But are you leaning on his power to do it? Or do you think it's up to you still? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this lesson for the church, for every church, for all churches. For us as Christians, we're not left alone when it comes to understanding a valid, authentic gospel ministers and ministry. You are showing us what we, what we need to know and what we need to discern. So I pray, Father, that you will help us to discern, be discerning people, to be able to see what you want us to see and to be able to support authentic gospel ministry when we see it. Father, for anybody who is here who is still thinking, you know, in the first person for salvation, that I, I've got to do these things. Uh, Father, I pray that you, you will open their eyes to understand that it's the man on the cross in the middle of the, in the, in the middle cross 
he, he is the only one who can say, come in, and he will, he will. He's not going to hold anything back to anybody who comes to him hungry or thirsty or painful for salvation. Let them see that man, that Jesus, who is slow to anger and full of compassion. Even today, Lord, even today, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.